Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Another familiar passage, but we've got some, I pray, fresh twos from the Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you for bringing your Bible every week. Please do. Please turn. Please take some notes. and Let's really um, spend time in the text this morning. Let's jump right into it. John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test Philip, for he himself knew what he intended to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragment, uh, fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. Now, it's important for us to really kind of understand the, the setting here. So I have a couple pictures for you this morning. If you're not real familiar with the Sea of Galilee, what it looks like. This is a picture of kind of the, the northern end of Sea of Galilee. You can see the boats that are out there, their size, and kind of the mountainous terrain that's around it. Some of the little houses and, and villages um, that are around. It hasn't changed much in 2,000 years other than some big hotels that they bought, uh, built on the shore. But um, for the most part, when you look around, it's similar. If you go to the next one, um, here's just another sense of the lay of the land. Um, I, I pray and hope someday, I was thinking this yesterday, I would love to be able to do an Israel trip. Wouldn't that be awesome if we could ever get there? Um, I've been able to go there a couple times, and it just changes your life when you get to stand there. But uh, if you go to the next one, you see kind of, again, this picture of, of the area, and you see these hills um, that go down to the water. What that does is it creates kind of a natural amphitheater. So if you stand, if you see um, down here some of these houses on the shore, if somebody's talking down there, when you're standing on the hill, you can hear that because the, the sound comes up from the water and creates an amphitheater effect. So I want to just give you a sense of that because this is where they were. Again, it hasn't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. So Jesus is walking along, and he decides he's going to get in a boat and go from one side to the other. You can see it's not very wide. So as they're getting in the boat and they're going across, um, as that happens, it's not a long trip, but as they're going across, the people run along the shore. They realize he's going to go to the other side, and they start to move around and come to the other side to meet him on the other uh, shore of the Galilee. 
Now, Mark 6, which is kind of the companion passage of this, and you can look at it later, says that people came out of all the different towns. There were little villages that dotted the Galilee region, and they all came out of the towns, and they all walked en masse around the shore, coming around. Now, think about that just for a minute. I want you to stop and get that picture from a human standpoint. Because Jesus was God in flesh, right? He's fully God. He's fully human. He took on our humanity. And the Bible says he was in all points tempted like we are. Okay, hear that. He's in all points tempted like we are and yet without sin. So there are a couple possible reactions. As If you're him, you're riding on the boat, you're going across, put yourself in that place. What would that be like if I'm on a boat with my disciples? You're not God at this point. You're just, you're just human. You're, you're riding on the boat with your disciples, and you look out, and you see along the shoreline swarms of people like ants just walking along the shoreline, coming over to where you're going to land. 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, we don't know. We're just told it was 5,000 men. The women and children aren't, aren't counted here. So we have to assume, let's say, at least, at least 10,000 people. Maybe upwards of 15, 20,000 people all waiting on the shore. Now, if you're on the boat and you're looking across and there are 20,000 people walking along waiting for you, what are your human reactions? I believe there are three possible human reactions to that. One would be pride. It's kind of heady, right? Look at all those people waiting for me. They're going to hang on my every word, and they're hopeful that I'm the one that's going to help them, and I'm really the only one that can help them. See, our humanity and our, and our pride loves that attention. We love being necessary. It would be really easy for any of us to feel kind of, kind of cocky, like, man, this is awesome. They're waiting for me. They're, they're coming. They're out of their towns, coming, looking for me. Second reaction I think we could have is being overwhelmed. Some of us wouldn't be so excited about a crowd of 15,000 people waiting for us. We might feel a little helpless at that point, like the demand's so great, and there's no way I'm going to be able to address that minister to each and if you're insecure, what do you want to do at that point? Um, could you guys turn the boat around? I, I forgot something on the last shore. Let's, let's go back just for a minute. I, I, I'll deal with that later. Or we feel irritated. Oh, come on. I've been doing this all day. I can't believe this crowd is there. I'm not going to, the 15,000 people, I'm not going to be escaping for hours. It's going to be so... Oh, guys, you're going to have to, you're going to have to help me a little bit. I, I, I can't deal with this. Why are you guys not running point on this? Why didn't you guys discourage this? I can't possibly deal with 15,000 people. Now you say, well, come on, Paul. Jesus wasn't tempted that way. Yeah, he was. Because he's in all points tempted like we are. And I don't know about you, but I'd probably feel all three of those emotions. Proud. Wow, look at that. They're all coming for me. But, boy, I don't know. I feel a little overwhelmed by that. And I'm kind of irritated that this is going to take the rest of my day. Anybody else want to feel that way? I would. Look at what Jesus does. It shows how amazing his character is. How worthy his example is to follow. Because his reaction is not based in his flesh. It's based in love and holiness. And Mark says that when he saw those crowds, he looked at them with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. At this point, Jesus doesn't feel pride and he doesn't feel overwhelmed and he doesn't feel irritation. He only feels compassion. 
And that is because of a very important spiritual truth about the Lord that needs to impact our heart this morning. And we've kind of already sung about it, but let's, let's look at it again. There's an important spiritual truth that should drive us and drive our ministry and drive us as a church forward. And that is that the Lord's heart is to meet people at their point of spiritual need. The Lord's heart, if we can speak about it that way, the heart of God is to, is to meet people at their point of spiritual need. His heart breaks at lostness. His heart breaks at helplessness. He only wants to minister to us. Wherever you are this morning on the spiritual spectrum, if you want nothing to do with God, you're here against your will, or, or you're curious, you just kind of wandered in, or, or, or you're kind of seeking, and I don't know, and I'm kind of on the fence, or, or you're newly saved, and you're growing in the Lord, or you love the Lord with all your heart. Whatever it is, God cares about you. He cares about your helplessness. He cares about your hurt. He cares about you being, you being frustrated. And he wants to minister to your need. That's why Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel is the most important word that we can communicate to our world. There's nothing better than we can tell them, especially in this current environment. And I'm not just talking about politics. People are desperate to be loved. They're desperate to be loved. And so many people don't feel loved from, from youth who are emotionally and physically abused or abandoned by their parents to teenagers who are craving some kind of pure and genuine love in their relationships, but they're settling for far less. They're settling for impure substitutes for real love. Adults who can't stay married, who are, who are, who are angry at each other and, and hostile, and then they fall into addiction, drinking, and, and pills, and drugs, and those kinds of things, just, just because there's a desire for love and purpose. People do those things because they want something better, and so many people are hostile and angry and defensive, and all that is just a covering for the lack of love and compassion they feel in their lives. This is, the, this is the reality of our world this morning, and it is a dangerous game that the enemy enjoys playing. He, he couches people's personal pain and their feelings of personal and emotional and relational disappointment, and he hopes that we will follow our human default to, to solve that through more selfish fulfillment. The devil wants to distract us and think that the real problem is emotions or, or, or problems in our psyche or, or some kind of relational issue or that we're not good enough and we don't look nice enough and we don't have enough success. That's where the devil wants us to focus. What God wants to tell us is all of that is just a symptom of the real problem, which is spiritual. And the devil never wants to talk about the spiritual problem because he knows that if we understand the spiritual problem, we're going to say, hey, wait a second, I'm in bondage. I need to be released. And he knows that there's one way, and it's Jesus Christ. Everything at its core is spiritual need above all else. And you can look at anything in your life and say, well, you don't know about this and, and the crisis I'm in. No, I'm telling you, everything at its core is spiritual. Now, please see in the text, in verse 3, that Jesus' first thought 
as he goes up on this mountain, is not to teach. I looked at it again this morning, even though I've studied it all week. I said, I want to make sure that that's right. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. It does not say he began to speak, as it does in other passages. It just says that his first concern in verse 5 was to minister to people's needs. And let me tell you, that is one of, and I speak for a living, I preach for a living. One of the, often the greatest thing that people can hear from us, that people can see from us, is that we want to show them the love of Christ through sincere actions. Maybe they don't need another sermon. Maybe they don't need another, well, you're doing that wrong and you need to change. Listen, we'll get to that. that that'll come out when you build the relationship. But many times people just need to know, listen, I love you, I care about you. I'm concerned about you. How can I pray for you? I don't want to preach at you. Just how can I pray for you? How can I encourage you today? And that genuine love and that care for people will stand out in our nasty, divisive, selfish, hostile culture. But we have to move beyond race. We have to move beyond bias. We have to move beyond politics. We have to move beyond judgment and see each person as Jesus does in verse 5, see their spiritual need. When we recognize that truth, it will be so vitally important for us because our calling and our assignment from Jesus himself is defined by people's spiritual need. Go into the world and preach the gospel, baptizing, making disciples. People have a spiritual need. You need to communicate what you have seen and heard from me and now share it with other people and show them love, speak truth and love. That's all throughout the Bible, especially Acts, where God was willing to use people in powerful, even miraculous ways. And I'll get back to that word in a minute. If they will be willing, if we will be willing to trust that he wants to utilize us. And that is embodied, if you look back at verse 5, a detail I had never seen until this week. This is why it's so fun to study the Word of God. Because even in a passage we know this well, and how many were taught this passage as a kid? How many learned this passage growing up, right? Half of you, right? Feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus with the loaves and the fish. We've all heard this since we were kids. But, but there are awesome new insights, So look at the second spiritual principle, and then we're going to focus on one person. Here in verses 5 to 7, we see that the Lord tests the depth of our faith through simple circumstances. The Lord tests the depth of our faith through simple circumstances. John says Jesus already knew. He already knew what he was intending to do. That's in the end of verse 6. So whether or not Philip participates, this miracle is going to happen. But what struck me as I was studying that this week is that this miracle started with five barley loaves and two fish. Think about all the times, all the miracles in the Bible, and I looked at each one this week. How many miracles started with something small? The parting of the Red Sea started with just an increased wind. David defeated Goliath by starting with just some righteous indignation. When Elijah called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel to defeat the prophets of Baal, it started with a prayer. 
When David took uh, safety in the lion's den and when God helped him, that just started with, with a courageous stand, a gutsy stand before the Lord, just saying, no, I'm going to keep my convictions and my values. When the woman with the hemorrhage was healed, it started with just a touch. When Jairus' daughter was restored back to life, it just started with a simple request. And Pentecost started with a prayer meeting. In every revival you look at in history, it starts with prayer. On almost probably half of the miracles that are done in Scripture, it starts with a prayer. So if we're asking the Lord and we're expecting the Lord to do mighty things in our midst, you know what? Let's start with Tuesday night. That will be a good indication of our level of faith. If we're really serious, Lord, we want to we want to see you do a work in our country. We want to see your your word and your convictions and and what is right and what is godly. We want to see that represented in our country. We can sit around and hope that and debate it and go online and and share memes and all that kind of stuff. Or we can gather together and say, "Lord, you need to work. You need to work." The point of all these examples, the point of the loaves and the fish, is that no matter how big the miracle is, it starts with simple circumstances in which God's people show strong faith. So look at it. It's late. They're in a desolate location. They're not near any town. So the disciples, they're logically saying, all right, look, we, Jesus, there's like 10,000, 12,000 people here, and we don't have any food, and it's getting late. Look, look, at dark. Jesus, we need, to, we need to send the people home. Look what Jesus does, verse 5. He looks at the crowd, and then he says to Philip only, and I'll get to that in a minute. He says to Philip only, where will we get bread to feed everybody? Now, there is not, you saw the pictures, there's not a pick and save on the hill. There's not a woodman's where you can go in and find 9,000 kinds of bread. There's nothing they're a crowd on a hill with nothing. So Jesus says, where are we going to get some bread? Now, before we deal with that, it hit me as I studied this week that he singles out Philip. And I said to myself, well, when the Lord puts out a specific detail, we have to ask why, right? Why Philip? So ask yourself, why Philip? In fact, let's all say that. Why Philip? Why not Peter? Peter was what? The man of action. Like, you want something done, you ask Peter. Peter will go full bore. Like, it might not end up like you want it to, but he'll get the job done. Thomas, not so much. Thomas, well, where are we going to pay for it? I don't know how we're going to do it. No. But he says, Philip. Philip, where are we going to get bread? Now, we don't see a lot of passages about Philip in the New Testament, but it's intrigued me. Philip was originally born in Bethsaida, a little town on the Galilee. It was the hometown of Peter and Andrew. He was one of the first three disciples that Jesus called to follow him. He was the first evangelist of the 12 because as soon as he meets Jesus, he says to his friend Nathaniel, you got to come. We met the Savior. We met the Messiah. We met the one that Moses and, and Isaiah talked about. He's here. So Philip's the first evangelist of the 12. His faith all throughout the New Testament is strong, 
In Acts 8, he's very persuasive in preaching the gospel. God gives him the power to do signs and miracles that verify the gospel. And, and we also see in Acts 8, the passage we talked about a while back, where he goes down into the desert and meets the Ethiopian eunuch, remember? And he runs up to the chariot. Do you understand what you're reading? And he leads him to Christ and baptizes him. So Philip, all throughout Scripture is a man of solid faith. He has a heart for people. He is an evangelist. He's faithful. So again, come back to verse 5 and ask yourself, why is Philip the only one that Jesus directs this question to? Now the text tells us in verse 6 that Jesus was testing him because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. But what was the nature of the test? Why does he test him, and why does he test Philip? And I believe this test has two parts, and the two parts both have an application to us. The first reason, I believe, is that he wanted to test if Philip really trusted in the evidence of things not seen. The Bible says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So he's testing Philip. Do you really trust? Do you really have faith in what is not seen. Can you see, Philip, believer, person this morning, can you see beyond what is tangible and logical? Now, Philip kind of momentarily forgets who he's talking to. He looks at the circumstances, and, and he gives what would be a logical, practical, reasonable, very tangible answer. Um, Lord, not even a half a year's salary would buy enough bread for these people. And even if we could, even if we had half a year's salary, everybody would just get a tiny little bit. It's not logical. Jesus, this is between the lines. It's not logical. Like, we don't have the money. We don't have the resources. We don't have the bread. And, and, and even if we did, it's not going to satisfy everybody. But here's the thing about faith. Faith doesn't sit in the logical. Faith goes beyond that. And it sees past what we can explain. Please hear this this morning. It sees past what we can explain to the possibility of what the Lord can and will do if we will trust him for what seems impossible. Now I'm telling you right now, our minds are arguing with that. And that's why faith has to go beyond the obvious. So he's saying, Philip, do you trust what you can't see? And then second, I believe he's saying to Philip, I want to see just how deep your heart is for people. Now, Philip clearly had a heart for people. He had a desire to see people get saved. That's proven throughout the rest of his life. But in this moment, will he be wearied Will he be frustrated by the situation? And will that hinder him? You know, sometimes the hardest times for ministry are when we're worn down, when we're a little annoyed, when we feel a little frustrated, when we're tapped out. Maybe we're just even kind of tired of people. Introvert, extrovert, doesn't matter. How many, don't raise your hands. How many times do you just get kind of tired of being around people? Like, I need some space. I got to sit on my couch today and just sit under a blanket, do nothing. I'm just, I'm just tired of people. You know what I found? That it is in those times 
that that's the prime time for the Lord to work because he's emphasizing it's not in your strength, it's in mine. Yeah, you're weary and you're done and you're kind of tired of people and you don't want to go to Harbor Cafe, speaking to you maybe, because you just don't feel like engaging today. I'm just going to go home. It's cold and build a fire. Listen, I get it. This may be the time where the Lord wants to do some ministry through you and me. And we have to be open to that. And we have to be aware that when we're weary and frustrated, that's many times when the Lord's primed to work. That's why, and I love this, never really focused on this before. That's why the second person in this account, the one who really stands out, is the one we need to focus on. Now, he's not a disciple. It mentions Philip and Andrew. It's not either of them. He's not necessarily an ardent follower of the Lord. We don't know anything about him. We don't know his name. It's very likely he's there with his parents because he's described as a lad. The word lad there means a small boy. Whatever the case is, when they start canvassing the crowd, looking for some food, does anybody have some snacks? Anybody got some beef jerky? Anybody got some some, uh, matzo crackers? Anybody have anything? Everybody's hungry. He's apparently, and this really hit me, he's apparently the only one who offers his food. Hard to believe in a crowd of 10,000, 15,000 people. Somebody's got to have some bread or some figs or some veggies or something, right? Somebody's got to have some food. But the crowds are huge. And if you're going there a while, you're going to probably bring some food. It's late in the day. The sun's probably setting. And the one question that really hit me was, why doesn't anybody else offer their food? It's only this little kid. And I believe that leads us to a very beautiful truth that has very wide-ranging implications for you and me. Look at the third thought. The small boy was available and unhesitant for the Lord to work through him. The small boy was available and unhesitant for the Lord to work through him. Now, think about how this scene would play in our fragile, triggered culture now. I mean, really think about it. Some strange man comes through this giant crowd asking for food to share with everybody. And when he sees the little boy with his loaves and his fish, he takes him away and walks him through the giant crowd in the dark to somebody who nobody else knows. Now, there's no evidence that the boy screams in fear. I tried to picture this way. Stranger danger, you know, like everybody's, ah, there's no evidence of that in either text, John 6 or Mark 6. There's, there's no evidence. Instead, we see that he just goes with this stranger, leading him through the crowd so his food can be taken. Now, I believe that's an example of having the simple faith of a child. Little kids trust pretty, pretty freely, right? That's not necessarily a good thing. We need to very guard them. We need to teach them and model for them what it is, when it's safe, and when it's not safe. I get all that. I'm not dismissing that. But I want you to see here his heart and his willingness to share. That could teach us adults a lot. Up until about fourth grade, I think there's still a lot of respect and, and compliance with kids that's powerful. It's kind of their own measure of faith. And what I love about this kid is that he is not resistant to the work of the Lord. Apparently, there's no selfishness or or hesitation. 
Because selfishness and hesitation are both ultimately acts of resistance to what the Lord's doing. He could have said, no, you're not taking my lunch. What are you, what are you doing? No, I'm just a little kid. Don't take my food. When, when Philip walks up, he could have run away. Ah! Instead, Philip walks up. Hey, um, or Andrew, excuse me. And he, and he says, you have some food there. Can we share it? Sure, sure, mister. Walks with him. He allowed the Lord to do and to use what he had. And we studied about barley last week, right? It's not a coincidence that they were five barley loaves. Five barley loaves and two little fish for this huge crowd. But the boy trusts Jesus with his possessions, even though he didn't know what the outcome would be. And in that moment, I want you to see this. Please understand this verse 9, because it's not stated what he says or what he does. It just says that Andrew says, here's this boy with the loaves and the fish. But in that moment, his faith is stronger than the disciples. Because he is relying that whatever he gives to the Lord, no matter how small, God can use that. And I was convicted by that this week, and I said, does that describe me? Whatever the Lord wants from me, whatever I can give to him, big, small, or in the middle, do I trust him that if I hand it to him, he can use it in a mighty way? And if you want to carry that thought to its logical extension, the next question would be, is my heart even open to miracles? Now, we don't talk about miracles a lot because that word's been co-opted by fringe elements of Christianity who misuse it and misappropriate it. But I want to talk for a minute about miracles. Do you and I believe in them? Oh, the Red Sea, that was awesome, and yeah, they walked through on dry ground, and that's cool. Okay, do you believe in the same kind of miracle now? Well, um, uh, hmm, Wow. I don't, I don't think the Lord works that way anymore. Oh, really? What's the evidence? Well, God, the Bible's complete, and God just doesn't do that. Well, it says that God is unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So God can't do miracles anymore? Well, we got to be pragmatic about this. Listen, I don't know if God will ever do the Red Sea again, but prayer that is dramatically answered and illogically answered is a miracle to me. The fact that God even listens to me when I pray. Seeing people that are hostile to the Lord radically saved and transformed. You don't think the grace of God is a miracle? That we get to be pulled, like we sang earlier, out of bondage into freedom? That we go from death to life? If that's not a miracle, I've never seen a miracle. You don't believe that God can heal people? That God can restore marriages that are just about done? That, that God can't bring back kids who have rejected Christ and rejected us? Or, or, or to go to what makes us a little bit more uncomfortable, that God may use something that we make available to him to do something really miraculous. Do you literally believe in that idea? Or do we just kind of quietly dismiss it and say, well, that's not, that's not really in my comfort zone? Oh, how many of us believe this morning that we can experience the miraculous work of God in our lives? I mean, really believe that. These people are just like you and me. 
They're average, hardworking people, struggling financially, raising their families. Some have big needs, some have small needs. Many of them are there with heaviness in their heart. They're hoping Jesus can help them. They're hoping Jesus can heal them. And I want you to notice what they do about that. They don't sit back in their homes and complain. Well, look at all those people following Jesus. Well, never, that's not going to change my life. No, notice quickly, we need to be done. Three quick details. Number one, they pursued the Lord. They wanted to be in his presence. Verse two, a large crowd followed him. They wanted to receive his word, so they see his boat going across, and they run ahead, and they wait on the shore, and they're pressing in, and they're trying to follow him wherever he goes. They just want to get close to him, because they know what he's doing can change their lives. Do we want to be around the Lord like that? Do we crave the presence of the Lord like that? If I told you Tuesday night, we're going to pray and God's going to do something miraculous, would you say, I'm going to be there early? Or would you go, I don't know, I'm kind of busy. Would you believe that God can bring healing and restoration to lives? How eagerly do we pursue the Lord that way? It's very easy to say, well, I'm saved. And I just want to kind of... Paul, come on, quit yelling at me this morning. I just want to go to church and kind of manage my walk and feel good. And I study and I pray every day and, and I'm getting there. Oh, come on, let's not live average Christian lives. Let's hunger for his presence. Verse 2, they pursue the Lord. Look at the next thought. They're not easily dissuaded. It's getting dark. They're hungry. Nobody's offering up a meal. But they've brought their kids. They've left their homes. They've walked around the hills. Mark says twice, it's already quite late. No food, no bottled water, no cell phones. They're not griping about the lack of Wi-Fi at the Jesus rally. They're not deterred. They had to be near him. So they sit. And as day turns into night, Nobody's saying, hey, are you guys going to feed us at some point? Not getting any bars out here. Come on. What kind of show is this? You'd think they'd have some snacks. Irene, do you think they should have some snacks? I think they should have some snacks. Right? There's not one word of the crowd saying, feed us. Would we do that in our 2018 world? How often do our interests and our activities take priority over time in his presence? And we can justify that we're busy and we have responsibility. I get that. Except I was reading the book of Ezra this week. And I saw that the people for seven straight days, all day, stood and listened to the word of God being preached. And I thought to myself, what am I doing? We have it so much easier. We have far more resources. And yet, for some reason, we're so much less passionate. And we have all these distractions, these obligations that, that tell us that we have to be more intentional about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Because what does the Lord promise us? When you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you will be filled and I don't know about you, but I need to be filled with righteousness. We know that they needed 
Because Mark 6 says Jesus looks at them and they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion on them because he knows that they're wandering lost. And I thought to myself, how much does that describe our country this morning? One of the most important, if not the most important election in the history of our country. How much fracture is there? How much confusion is there? How much lostness is there right now? And no election's going to solve that. Come on, we know that. But oh, as believers, we don't need a political solution. The world doesn't need a political solution. It needs a spiritual solution. And we need a hunger and thirst after righteousness. So they pursued the Lord. They weren't easily dissuaded. Third, would you see that they trusted in him completely? Not just about healing them, but also about receiving his word. There's no evidence here that the Pharisees are doing their things and questioning and debating. Purity of the people is they just sit willingly and they hear and they listen and they follow. One of the things I love about this church is that we love the word of God, right? We love the word of God. And we know that studying it and being changed by it is vitally important. And let's make sure that's always our heart. Let's make sure that we're spending personal time in his word, that we're not just expecting that a weekly Bible study or a, or a sermon is going to fill our 168 hours this week. We need to study to show ourselves approved, like the Bereans. The Bereans receive the word daily with readiness, and they search the scripture. They, they expected something. We need that same attitude because that's the same attitude of acceptance that's present in this young kid. Look at one more truth about him. The small boy was willing to sacrifice to minister to others. It would have been so easy for him to just hold on to what he had. No, this is my bread. Remember, this is not a teenager. This is a little boy. It's my bread. It's my, it's my fish. Strange person, get away from me. I'm not giving you my stuff. That's not here. That's not in the text. And face value, it would have seemed pointless to give the food away, right? It's not. Five loaves and two fish, it's not going to make a dent in the crowd this size. Where's everybody else? Why isn't anybody else offering their food? Am I the only one in a crowd of 12,000 that has a snack? Really? Like, like, where's everybody else? See, those are the words we say when we're focused on ourselves. But I love this kid's mindset. He's willing to sacrifice to minister to others, even though he doesn't know if it's going to make a difference. How often do we take that posture because we can't see how something small is going to make that big of an impact? And yet I see it all the time around this church. I was up here Monday. Laura was setting up the, the whole room for Harbor Cafe. I was back on Friday. She was here again. We had people packing up boxes for kids all around the world yesterday morning. I got Jean cleaning the church with a smile on her face each week. We've got, we're nursery workers and teachers who follow the schedule and show up and they're prepared and they're putting together little crafts. We've got greeters who, who meet people at the door and welcome them. We got people who sacrifice when we say, hey, we're short today. Can you step in? Absolutely. We'll be glad. Listen, that's, that's the heart we have to have. And I want to, I want to beg you, don't diminish those little small actions as unimportant because I want to tell you they're in the five loaves and two fish category. The little things we do for the Lord, God can use in powerful ways. And the ultimate purpose of our sacrifice is to honor him and to minister to other people. The, 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 the group 
that sang this morning, we came up Thursday in practice. We're not doing this so you go, wow, that was really good. You guys sing some, man, you play those instruments. No, every week we say, Lord, don't let anybody see us. We don't want to be in the way. We don't want to be a distraction. I'd prefer to stand behind that wall and lead worship. Because I don't want to be a, a, a distraction. Because the goal is to minister. And let me finish with this. This small boy has no idea what Jesus is going to do. He has no clue. He's just a little kid. He has no clue that Jesus is going to take five barley loaves and two fish and divide them. And everybody's going to have plenty to the point that there are 12 baskets of scraps. You wouldn't even have 12 baskets. You wouldn't even have a half a basket of scraps if you tore up the loaves and the fish and put them in the bottom. And yet everybody's full to satisfied. Look at it. Likewise, as much of the fish as they wanted. Why? This little boy didn't know, but maybe he understood in some way that in Jesus's hands, what is small suddenly becomes very significant. Whatever you can offer to the Lord, whatever you can give to the Lord, in his hands, it becomes very, very powerful. And it can radically change lives if we are just willing. And listen, there's nobody that got that message more than the disciples. As they picked up their basket and went through the crowd and everybody dumped their scraps in. And by the time they got back, they were lugging those baskets. And they all sat them down. And Jesus just sat there. There's no way they could miss the message. You give me what you have, and I'll do a powerful work with it.